We're going through the book of Matthew right now, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. But before we go to Matthew chapter 8, this passage that we're looking at this morning reminds me of Psalm 46. And so I want you to go ahead and open your Bible for a moment to Psalm 46. And some of you may remember about a year ago, we looked at Psalm 46 in March 2020. I kind of went back and looked it up and it was, I think that was pretty much the week before the, the so-called pandemic hit. And so go ahead and turn there, Psalm 46, very helpful Psalm. The subscript, the heading there in the word says, to the choir master, of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. The sons of Korah say that they will not fear. And it's literally there that they will not become afraid. They will not enter into that state known as fear because God is their refuge and strength. God is their help in trouble. He is a, he's very much to be found is what very present a very present help in trouble. He's very much to be found. In other words, He is near and He is present with them. And because God was present, fear was absent. And even if the earth moved and even if the mountains were to fall into the sea and the waters of the sea were roaring and foaming, they said they would not enter into the state of fear. And when you think about it, that's really a terrifying scene to think about the mountains going into the sea and and the chaos that's coming out of that. It's a terrifying scene. And so we ask, why were they so confident? And the answer again is because they knew that God Himself was their help in trouble. They knew that He was near. In verse 7 of the psalm, it says, the Lord of hosts is with us The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. And that's repeated again at the end of the psalm in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, our fortress, Selah. And so God's presence delivered them from fear. The knowledge of God's presence delivered them from fear. And that level of confidence in the midst of, of such a, a difficult circumstance almost seems too great, too, too far beyond us. It almost seems unrealistic. We need to remember that this isn't just some enthusiastic, emotional, overzealous, and arrogant declaration of the sons of Korah. This is the inspired Word of God. God is our refuge and strength. Therefore, we will not fear. See, I think the problem with us, and I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I still I admit there's, there's times when I struggle with fear, when I struggle with anxiety. And I think the problem with us is that we too easily forget the part where the psalmists say that God is with us. 
We forget about the majesty and the power of God. We get things exactly backwards. We tend to think about the majesty and the power of our troubles. Instead of the majesty and the power of God, we think about how our our troubles are with us and we forget that God is with us. We think about what our troubles are and not about who our God is. And we dwell on what our troubles can do and we so easily lose sight of what God can do. Whenever we get overwhelmed with anxious thoughts, worries, what-ifs, or fears, we, we've lost sight of God. And if you think about it, you'll, you'll see that that's true, that whenever we fear, it's because we've forgotten who God is, and we've forgotten His presence with us. Now we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, and you could turn in your Bibles there now to Matthew chapter 8. And this is a story that ends up being almost the exact opposite of Psalm 46, verses 2 to 3. The disciples were in the storm. The the waters of Psalm 46, 2 and 3 were, were shaking. And they were in a fearful storm. But God was with them. He was in the boat with them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they had lost sight of Him and they became afraid. And so again, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 23 to 27, but I want to start reading this morning back at verse 18. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Now what we have here is a story about Jesus' power. His power over nature. And it's meant to show us Jesus' power and authority. And it's meant to make us marvel with His disciples. It's meant to make us marvel at the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. The primary focus of the text is Christological. That is, it teaches us about Jesus Christ. But there's also a secondary focus here on discipleship and on disciples. In verses 18 to 21, Jesus challenged his disciples to count the cost, to leave everything and follow him. And some did just that. But those disciples are still of little faith. They're still growing in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he can do. And Matthew brilliantly weaves these two themes together in these verses in in this section of the gospel. 
Matthew 8 and 9 presents Jesus' amazing authority. He has power over sin. He has power over sickness. He has power over nature. He has power over demons. And remember, in this section, there's three sets of three miracles separated by two calls to discipleship. And so three miracles, discipleship, three miracles, discipleship, three miracles, and then uh, we go into chapter 10. Now in verses 23 to 27, we're, we're in the, the, f- the first miracle in the second set of three. So that's the first miracle. Matthew 9, 17, or Matthew 9, 9 to 17 is the, the second call to discipleship. And then after that, we're gonna have three more miracles. And so again, there's three miracles, two little illustrations or, or calls to discipleship, three more miracles, two calls to discipleship, and then three more miracles. And remember that last one's gonna have actually three miracle stories, but four miracles for a total of ten. But what we see here then with this, this miracles, the power of Christ, call to discipleship, miracles, call to discipleship, we see the, this connection between knowing Christ and following Him. And so Matthew shows us who Jesus is, and then he invites us to follow Him as His disciples. And then he shows us who Jesus is, and then he calls us again to follow Him as disciples. And then he shows us again a third time the power of Jesus And then we're going to see Matthew chapter 10, this call to go out and be his disciples and bring the message of Christ to the world. And those two things can never be separated, knowing Christ and following him. How can you follow him if you don't know him? And how can you get to know him more if you don't follow him? And it's actually knowing Christ and and knowing the excellencies of his person and his work which enables us to give up everything to follow Him. And so Matthew's going to show us Jesus, and then he calls us to commit ourselves to Him as His disciples. And we see that really, uh, especially in this miracle story today. There's this, this connection, this tight connection between discipleship and between who is Jesus Christ. We'll see Christ and we'll be challenged to ask, who is He that even the winds and the seas obey Him? And then we'll have an opportunity to think about ourselves. Do we trust this Jesus? Are we disciples of His? Do we trust Him? And if we do, where is our faith? And so we'll work through this text uh, scene by scene, kind of situation by situation, I've got kind of four points in the outline for you. We're going to see the stormy sea in verses 23 and 24. Then we'll see the startled sailors in uh, verse 25. Then we'll see the scolding Savior in verse 26 as He scolds His disciples and He rebukes the wind and the, and the sea. And then we'll see the stunned saints in verse 27. So first of all, in, in our outline this morning, the stormy sea in verses 23 and 24. The stormy sea in verse 23 and 24. Now in verse 18, and if you look at it again there, he, Jesus gave orders to go to the other side. And some of the so-called disciples, when he gave those orders, they made excuses or they were challenged on their current level of commitment. Now we don't know how those two responded in verses 18 and uh, verses 18 to 21, but in chapter 10 we're going to be introduced to the 12. 
We've only met so far in this gospel, we've only met Peter and Andrew, James and John. But remember, Matthew's not really chronological here. He's more kind of thematic and he's, he's giving us just uh, the, the themes of discipleship and showing us who Jesus is. But if we were going through the book of Mark, we'd see that the event in our text this morning happened after Jesus had already appointed the twelve and, and those twelve went with him to the other side. And so Jesus gives this command, and some people don't follow. Some people uh, maybe turn back from following him. But the disciples, they go ahead and obey this command, and they follow him. Verse 23, Matthew simply says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Verse 23, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And it's interesting that Matthew says it this way. And it seems as though he's making a distinction between his disciples and those who are not disciples of his. He gave orders, his disciples followed, but some others potentially did not. And the account ends by noting that even the winds and the sea obey him. And so there's a repetition of these discipleship scenes here. There's, there's obedience, there's following him, we see his disciples Remember, to be a disciple means to follow Jesus. It's to imitate His lifestyle. It's to walk as He walked in this world. Discipleship means obeying Him, following Him, walking after Him. And in this case, obedience was as simple as following Him to the other side of the sea, getting into the boat and following after Him. But following Jesus doesn't mean an easy life. We saw that last week. The the would-be disciples were reminded that they would have to give up the comforts of home to follow Jesus to the other side. The other disciple was told to leave the family business, leave his inheritance, and follow Jesus. Now the disciples, they chose to follow, and they were about to be tested. They were about to be tested with this storm. And so I thought this would be a good time just to remind you that following Jesus isn't always easy. It might never be easy. The the Lord has designed our lives that we disciples might be more and more conformed to the image and likeness of our Master. And that growth happens, or at least one of the ways that it happens, through testing and trials. God's goodness in our lives means that He will test us, that He will send trials to grow our faith and to mature us in Christ. Now, God doesn't send these trials to get us. He sends them to grow us. And that's why James says in James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials or when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we can rejoice in our trials because we know that God will mature us through them. Now, I want to break this down a little bit more because there's different kinds of trials in life. Some of them we can avoid and, and some of them we should avoid. And what I mean here is that some trials and even many trials come from sin and we should avoid those. You know, when, when we think, when we think, say, and do things that are contrary to the way that God prescribes in His Word, that's sin. And when we sin, we're living contrary to the way that God, our designer, 
designed. We weren't originally designed to be selfish and sinful and to gratify the desires of the flesh. And when we do that, we're operating in ways that God didn't design us. And that creates chaos. To go against order, to go against God's order creates chaos. Wherever you see chaos, whenever you find chaos in your life or chaos in the world, you can know that somewhere behind the scenes, sin is lurking. Sin is involved. Sin brings consequences. Sin creates death. Sin leads to death. Sin kills friendships and relationships. Sin kills your, you know, everything in your life, your job, your finances, your livelihood. It brings death everywhere that it touches. Proverbs 15 and verse 10 says that there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Those are some consequences that we would do well to avoid. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof, whoever won't be corrected, will die. Proverbs 13.15 is a a similar verse, a, a favorite of biblical counselors, usually quoted from the King James Bible. It says this, Proverbs 13.15, Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. The way of transgressors is hard. Sin, that is living contrary to God's Word, makes life hard. And Paul says the same thing in, in the New Testament, Galatians 6-8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. Or sorry, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. And what I'm getting at here is that generally speaking, when we obey God and when we love our neighbor, life goes well. And we avoid the consequences of sin and we avoid God's discipline in our lives. But the converse is also true. Generally speaking, if we sow to the flesh, we will reap trouble. Life will be hard. We will find chaos in our lives because we're going against the way that God designed us to live. And so there's a certain kind of conflict that we should avoid, a certain uh, kind of... um, Dif, you know, uh, conflict. What, what's the word I used? Anyways, there's something that we should avoid there. Sinning. Avoid that. Um, but even if we lived perfectly righteous, even if we, even if we were perfectly obedient in this world, in this time in which we live, we will still face trials and temptations. God will send trials into the lives of His children again to grow us, not to get us, but to grow us, not to not to punish us, but to prune us and make us more righteous, make us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we see in our passage. The disciples were following Jesus. They were obedient. They were doing exactly what they were called to do. But they followed the Lord right into a trial that was meant to test their faith and grow them in their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what every trial in our lives is designed to do, to show us in greater ways to experience the the riches and the glory of who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. And so in verse 23, when He got into the boat, His disciples followed Him, and behold, there arose a great storm 
on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Now in 1986, a boat was discovered in the Lake of Galilee. Matthew always calls it the Sea of Galilee, but a, a boat was discovered from New Testament times. And that boat was 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet tall. And so you can kind of picture this 26 and a half by seven foot boat, but you know, well, I guess I got to go like this, about four and a half feet high, not very high. And that boat was big enough for about 12 or so men and a good catch of fish. And so it's very likely that the disciples were in a boat just like that. And Matthew then says, behold, to emphasize the suddenness of the situation, behold, there arose a great storm. Now the word that Matthew uses for storm is a word that's normally used for earthquakes, and it refers to a shaking. The boat, it says, was being swamped by waves. Literally, the boat was being covered by waves. And the Sea of Galilee is known for its sudden violent storms. Remember, the Sea of Galilee is actually about 600 to 700 feet below sea level. And so it's a a, a low, low lake, a low sea, a a big lake really is what it is. But it was surrounded all around by steep hills and valleys. And the the wind would come kind of rushing down from the nearby mountains and it it would swoop through the valleys and it would stir up the waters of the lake and violent storms were were known and still to this day are known on this sea. Now the fact that the waves were covering the boat probably means that when the boat was in the the low part of the waves, the upper waves were above the boat. And it's been reported that, that waves as high as eight feet have been known in the Sea of Galilee. Mark describes the scene in Mark 4.37 like this. He says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And Luke says, And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now we get a sense of the severity of the storm from the disciples' reaction. They say in verse 25, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now remember that at least four of these disciples were professional fishermen that had grown up on the Sea of Galilee and had fished their their lives on that sea. And they will have seen severe storms and they were then truly in danger in this moment. This was a a dangerous storm. It was a severe storm. It's a a stormy sea or we could have called it the, the severe storm. And that's really point one in our outline, the severe storm, the stormy sea. Now let's see the startled sailors. And there's a a real great contrast here between the Lord and his disciples. Now the Lord, he was son of a carpenter. He wasn't necessarily a fisherman, but he was, in verse 24, asleep. Jesus was asleep, and he says in Mark there he was asleep on the cushion, and I don't really understand how it worked, but there was some kind of a cushion thing at the back of those boats that was somehow used as the as the rudder, and so there was a, a big cushion in this boat that they found in 1986, and Jesus seems to be sleeping on that cushion thing at the back of the boat. Now it had been, according to Mark's Gospel, which is a little bit more chronological, It had been a big day of ministering to the crowd. 
And he was tired. Jesus was tired. And he was so tired that he didn't even wake up in the midst of this storm. He would have been tossed around. He probably would have been wet. It wasn't likely a covered boat. And, and, but he was just, he was wiped out after a full day. And this fatigue then shows us Jesus's perfect humanity. He was God, but he took on and, and lived a human life. And so that's Jesus, but now we see number two in our outline, the startled sailors. The startled sailors. I should practice speaking before I get up here, right? Startled sailors. I, I always find a little tongue twister in every sermon that, I, that I'm not ready for. The startled sailors. Verse 25, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So the disciples see the storm and they begin to think, we are perishing. We are gonna die. And we're in, we're in the process of dying. And they, they wake up Jesus in, in somewhat of a panic, it seems. In the original, it's, it's just three words, a, a three word cry for help. Curry, sozon, apolumetha. And, and just, just these three words. Curry, sozon, apolumetha. Lord, save, we perish. Lord, save, we perish. The disciples are terrified in this moment. And in some sense, I think rightly so. It was a, they were in danger, according to Luke. It was likely the worst storm they'd ever seen. And they went to the right person. This is something of a prayer that they pray to Jesus Christ. We are, they're bringing the situation to the Lord. Lord, we perish. They make the right profession. They call him Lord. Now remember, Lord could mean anything from sir to all the way to God. But the, we know as the readers of Matthew that more than the disciples know here, we know that Jesus is God. But the disciples, it seems they, they don't know as much yet. They're, they're growing in their understanding of who the Lord is. But still, they call him Lord. And they bring the situation to him. Lord, we perish. And they make the right request. Save. Save us. They know enough about Jesus to go to Him. So far, they've seen Him heal the sick. They've seen Him cast out demons. But they haven't seen Him influence nature. They know something of His power. They know that, that they're beyond what they're able to do in this moment. And so they, they go to Him. They're, they're literally over their heads, if we want to think about it that way. The waves are over their heads. They're beyond what they can do. And so they go to the Lord, and I wonder what, what they were expecting Him to do. I, I don't, you know, it doesn't say, but I wonder what, what they were thinking would happen when they did this. They probably hadn't even had a chance to really think about it yet. They were in a, a terror-stricken panic. They were thinking that they would die. And so the seasoned fishermen and sailors asked the miracle-working carpenter rabbi to save them, and that leads us then from number two, the startled sailors in verse 25 to number three, the, the scolding savior in verse 26, the scolding savior. And Jesus is going to make two rebukes here. He's going to first rebuke the disciples and then he rebukes the wind and the sea. And so he's going to scold the sailors and then he's going to scold the sea. And he said to them, verse 26, why are you afraid Oh, you of little faith. He asks them a question. But don't forget about the scene here. The, the waves are still covering the boat. He doesn't deal with the wind first. He just looks at them and says, why are you so freaked out? 
oh, you of little faith. And he just lets the wind go and the waves go for a moment. Why are you afraid? That's a great question to ask yourself in the midst of, of fear. Why are you afraid? That word translated in the ESV afraid is, is only used three times in Scripture. It's used once here in Matthew 8.26. Why are you afraid? Once in the parallel passage in Mark 4.40. And it's used once in Revelation 21 and verse 8. I, I would imagine this is a verse that you know. Revelation 21 verse 8 says this, But as for the cowardly, that's the word, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so the only other time that word is used in Scripture is is right there at the beginning of that list of those who are going to hell, Revelation 21, verse 8, the cowardly. The word means cowardly or timid or a person lacking confidence. It's the opposite of faith. Jesus continues the question. He said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? We've seen that word little faith earlier in Matthew. Little faith is not no faith, but it's not, it's not much faith. It's little. It means little faith, little trust. And so Jesus rebuked them for being afraid, for being cowardly, for trusting so little. And that brings up a question, at least it does for me, what what should they have done in this situation? What should they have done? It was a severe storm. They were in danger. I think they were right to go to Jesus and ask for help. The problem was their little faith. The problem was their fear and their lack of confidence. They should have reasoned. They should have at least thought about it a little bit. They should have reasoned along these lines. Something like, Jesus came to accomplish the Father's will. Surely He's not going to die in a storm on the, on the Sea of Galilee. Surely God would, would wake Him if there was true danger. I think the right approach would have been to calmly bring the circumstance to Jesus with the confidence that, that He would do whatever was needed to be done. They were in the boat with Jesus, but they failed to acknowledge what that meant. They failed to acknowledge that God was with them in the boat. Now, as far as for us, we need to entrust our trials to the Lord as well. Fear is the opposite of faith. Now, we don't have Jesus physically with us, and so we don't have any assurance like they might have that everything is going to be okay. But if we have trusted in Christ, Jesus is spiritually with us. And he could make the difficult circumstance go away. And so we should feel free in any difficulty, in any trial, to ask him to remove the trial that we're in. But we should do so trusting that he is with us and that he is working in our lives. We should not be afraid. Our our thoughts should be on God, not on our circumstances. He is our refuge and our strength. He is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. And that, that means the Lord of armies. The Lord of armies, He controls the hosts of heaven and He is with us whatever happens in our lives. And so we don't need to be afraid. And so some of us need to hear this rebuke today. I know that I do and I I have enjoyed this rebuke all week long. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid, O you 
of little faith. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a blessed scolding from a wonderful Savior. Whatever is happening, lift it to Jesus in prayer. Trust Him as you serve Him moment by moment. Remember Matthew 6 and verse 30 where we saw that word again, little faith. It says there, but if God so clothes the grass, the, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Or we could add, what's going to happen? What, what if this happens? What if that happens? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And that's exactly what we need to do in, in moments of fear and anxiety is just focus on the now and serve the Lord moment by moment, trusting Him, seeking first His kingdom and leaving all of the what-ifs and all of the, the fears in His hands. He is able to stop any trial at any moment. And He is able to turn any trial or any difficulty into our good and His glory. Remember in this as well, Romans 8.28, and you probably know this, you could turn there if you wanted, but Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work according or work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, that is, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so we know that for those of us who love God, for those of us who are called, for those of us who are saved, all things work together for good. And the good is exactly there in verse 29, that we would be more like Christ, that we would bear fruit, and that others would come to know Him as well. And so all things work together for good because in and through them, God conforms His chosen people to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was the first scolding. And the first scolding shows us that we should trust Jesus. The second scolding shows us that we can trust Jesus. So the first one shows us that we should trust Him. The second one shows us that we can trust Him. And Jesus turned, and I imagine He turned in complete peace. Even in the midst of the storm, and, and, and He turned, He's not afraid. And He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And just like that, it went from a great storm to a great still. Now usually, violent storms would gradually subside. The wind would lessen and eventually the waves would settle after a few cycles. But this was a sudden still. Immediately, there was a, a great calm on the sea. And this should remind us of a few Old Testament passages. And I'll actually have you turn with me to, to look at some of these. Go to Psalm 65. Psalm 65 Verse 5 says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. 
The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring, ste- the, the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the, their waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. And so we see here God is the one who by the, by his strength established the mountains and who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. God is the one who is in control of the seas. Go to Psalm 89 now. Psalm 89. Let's, let's start in verse 6. For, it says, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? That is, who can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh, a great, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Yahweh? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. When its waves rise, you still them. And now go to Psalm 107. And Psalm 107 is, is really interesting, really just fits very well with what we see of Jesus. Psalm 107, I, I was looking at this this week. I'd, I'd love to preach Psalm 107 one of these days. But Psalm 107 verse 1 begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now, what's going on here is, is the, you know, the, the steadfast love of the Lord, His, His loyal covenant love is on display. He is a, a good God and the verse 2 asks the, those who have been redeemed by Him to, to testify. And so we're looking at those who have been saved from trouble, and I think implied, and as you go through the psalm, you see that the, the salvation here is actually a spiritual salvation. It's talking about they're being saved from the ultimate trouble, from the, the danger of the wrath of God. They're being saved and, and born again, if we want to say it that way. And so that's kind of verse 1 and, and 2 and 3. Then verse 4 starts with, some wandered in the deserts, finding no way, uh, no way to a city to dwell in. And so it talks about those some. And then verse 10, some sat in darkness in the shadow of death. And so there was some that were in a different state. And then verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways. And so it's talking about all these different groups of people that have been redeemed by the Lord. And then verse 23 is kind of what's pertinent for our text. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And so there's these people that are, are, are the redeemed of the Lord and they were, they were in the, they were on the boats in the sea and the Lord raised up a great storm. And verse 28, they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. 
He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their destined haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And then verse 32, let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. And in all of these verses from the Psalms that we looked at, it was the Lord. It was Yahweh who is the one who stills the raging sea. But Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is Yahweh. That He's not the Father, but He is God the Son, fully God, fully man. And He rebuked the wind and the sea And there was a great calm. He scolded nature and it obeyed Him. And so Jesus is the Lord of creation. Our Savior is the Lord of the natural world. And so He scolded His disciples and then He scolded the winds and the sea. And number four then in our outline, we see the stunned saints in verse 27. They had seen this situation. They had seen Jesus with a word calm the the deadly storm. Verse 27 says, the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey Him. The men marveled. They were amazed at Jesus. They were amazed that the winds and the sea obeyed Him. Only God could, could claim that. Only God could have the weather obey Him. And yet there was Jesus in front of them a man to all appearances. And so they ask, what sort of a man is this? And the question is meant to to linger in our minds. And it's left unanswered for now. What sort of a man is this? Now we, again, the readers of Matthew, know the answer, but the disciples are, are still learning about Him. Who is Jesus Christ? No question could be more important. He is the Lord over nature. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He's the savior of his people. He's the one who died for our sins. He's the one who rose from the dead, conquering death and sin. And by his life and death, we are regarded as righteous. Through him alone, we can be forgiven of our sins and made right before a holy God. And the way to receive the benefits of what He has done for sinners is to trust in Him. To make Him your refuge and your strength. To trust Him to cleanse you from sin and make you righteous in God's sight. And so we've seen today then the stormy sea. We've seen the startled sailors. The scolding Savior. And the stunned saints. And we see that in the midst of our trials, God works to show us in greater ways who He is, who Christ is, and to move us from being people of little faith to being people of great faith who know how to trust our God and trust our Savior Jesus Christ. And so the next time that you are in a a trial, or if we could even say it this way, in the storms of life, not that you're ever going to be on the Sea of Galilee, but the next trial Count it all joy, my brothers, knowing that you will have a greater understanding of who Christ is through it and that you will grow in likeness to your Savior through it if you trust Him. 
Trust Him then to be with you through all of life. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. The disciples were amazed when they thought about Jesus and when they saw what He did. And we too are to be amazed. And that's what we're going to sing about now. We're going to sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time together in Your Word. And we thank You for showing us Jesus Christ and His power over nature. And His power really in our lives to work in us through trials. Lord, we thank You for even the rebuke. And we pray that You would forgive us for our fear and help us to trust You in greater ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.